Well, we're in Matthew 11, 20 to 24 this morning. Let me read it for you. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Serious words this morning. Let me give you my big picture idea for this morning, and then I'll follow through with a couple of other ideas about uh, chapter 11. So my big picture idea is that only a divine king would dare to pronounce woes upon anyone who's indifferent or cynical towards his teaching or miracles. And so within chapter 11, we see three different aspects of Jesus's character. In verses 1 to 19, last week, we saw that he was the Messiah. And this week, in verses 20 to 24, we see that he is our judge. And next week, in verses 25 to 30, we'll see again that he is our Savior. And so the context of Matthew 11 reveals Christ in the following terms, four ways that he's revealed to us. He's the scolder of those who refuse to repent. He's the pronouncer of grave misery upon those who are unaffected and indifferent to his mighty works and teaching. He's the announcer of the day of judgment and the person who decides the degree of punishment to be meted out to each individual. And finally, he's the affirmer of the sovereignty of God who determines and reveals the things pertaining to salvation, and we'll look more closely at that in the sermon. So in the passage, three times Jesus uses the phrase mighty works. The single word for that is the word dunamis, which is translated as power. It emphasizes the superhuman, supernatural nature of the works of Jesus. In effect, these mighty works demonstrate the presence of the greatness of God's power and his glory before the people. And so the observance of these mighty works carried with them a huge personal responsibility for anyone who was witnessing his mighty works. The text says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And so the criticism and denunciation of these cities came because what should have happened as a result of witnessing Jesus' miracles and mighty works didn't happen. What should have happened didn't happen. The cities were denounced because mighty works that Jesus was doing did not lead to individual repentance. So the primary goal of the healing then isn't just to cast out demons or to make people more able to walk or to hear or to see. The primary goal of the miracles is to bring about personal repentance. 
And where the healings were happening and the repentance wasn't happening, Jesus announced woes on those cities. Woes are proclaimed and repentance is always correlated with faith or belief. In fact, Jesus began his ministry in chapter 4 with the words repent and believe. Those are at the heart of Jesus' first command regarding the kingdom of God. So remember this as we carry on this morning. Jesus is performing mighty works where there is unbelief. And even though Jesus' biblical and divine mighty works often captured people's attention and amazed and surprised them and even stunned the observer, they were clearly insufficient in and of themselves to convert the skeptic or the cynic or the committed, hardened unbeliever to acknowledge who Jesus was. The Bible is teeming with accounts, folks, of individuals and groups who witnessed undeniable miracles yet persisted in their unbelief and rejection of God's Son and his message. And of course, Judas would be the first person that would come to your mind. But think in the Old Testament, the Israelites in Egypt who experienced every miracle that God did to convince Pharaoh to release the Israelites to him. And miracles beyond counting in the desert, the daily manna from heaven, the daily sights of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, plus numerous extraordinary miracles which did not produce faith in their corrupt, disobedient hearts. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that all those who came out of Egypt who saw all those miracles died in the desert because of unbelief at Kadesh Barnea. All of them, the entire generation, except for two people, Joshua and Caleb. So miracles can give sufficient proof that a message and messenger are from God, but they do not provide irresistible evidence that compels repentance and submission. And of course, the reason for this is not to be found in the miracles, but in the person observing the miracles. Sinners love their sin, and they are addicted to their stubborn rebellion against God. And even clear, plain, undeniable, unmistakable, divine-oriented miracles cannot transform a sinner into a believer. And this is where there's a certain amount of tension in this passage, I think, this morning, that begins to take shape for us, because we know that Scripture also teaches that it is God that grants repentance. And yet, men are personally held accountable when they don't repent after seeing Jesus' mighty works. Folks, it's not just that men are unwilling to see their sinfulness and their need for repentance when they observe Jesus' mighty works. It's that they are unable to see what the necessary response to the divine works is. Because of their sin, people's whole being is corrupted so that they are incapable of acknowledging the holiness and glory in Jesus' mighty works right before them. And you know, we can go all the way back to the book of Deuteronomy in chapter 29 to see that it is God who grants repentance and opens the eyes and the hearts of the observer of mighty works. In verses 2 and 4 of 
Deuteronomy 29. It says, And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all of his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders. But to this day the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. That's where the sovereignty comes in to this passage. Just like the failure to respond with repentance to the mighty works of Jesus, the faculties of the individuals were there, but they lacked the spiritual power from God to perceive what the miracles called for and to use those faculties to appropriately repent. The natural man is utterly disabled by indwelling sin in all the faculties of his spirit and his soul and his body from thinking, feeling, or acting with any spiritual good toward God. And let me repeat the tension here. In the scriptures, every bit of the responsibility to respond properly to the mighty works of Jesus falls on the individual and not on God. Men are persuaded by their own evil to respond to Jesus with criticism and indifference because they freely chose that evil response. And the reason Jesus can rightly declare woes upon the rejection of his mighty works is because men are at liberty to act according to their own choices and their own inclinations and sin without being compelled or restrained by any source outside of them. And so divine miracles are not a cure-all for unbelief, but the expected outcome to being a witness to the mighty divine works was to be a repentant heart towards the kingdom of God. But mighty works don't compel someone to repentance. So whatever purpose someone had formed or established in their mind regarding the miracles they were seeing or whatever indifference they felt towards Jesus and his mighty works after witnessing them, the proper response to those mighty works should have been repentance. They should have had a change of mind. Here's a good definition, I think, of repentance unto life. Repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself to as much as you know of your God and as your knowledge grows at these three points. So our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. J.I. Packer. So repentance is the word metanoeo. Meta means after, noeo means to perceive. We have the idea of after perception. So repentance is a determined change of conduct within the person as a result of this after perception of Jesus' mighty works. So as witnesses to the miracles, their after perception should have made them become conscious of their sins to the point of sorrowing for them. And then they should have become intent on seeking God's pardon for their sinfulness. And they, that didn't happen, and that's why cities were denounced. 
And because you should have had this change of mind after witnessing the mighty works of Jesus, that should have led you to regret for the past course of life you had been pursuing, which would then result in not only a change of mind, but a new determined course of action for your life. That's how serious it was when you observed the mighty divine works of Jesus before you. But folks, you know, it's more than just thinking, you know, looking back, I should have acted otherwise. It's more than thinking, well, now that I've seen the miracles of Jesus, I think I'll turn over a new leaf. Seeing the miracle should have connected you to the reality of your own personal violation of God's moral law. That's how serious the intent of the miracles was to be on each individual. So the sense is that this witnessing of his mighty work should lead to a mighty change in your heart, in your mind, in your soul, in your life. Observing the miracle should have led to such a virtuous alteration of the mind and a change of purpose in your life that it would birth within you a real change in your personal life and practice. The afterknowledge of the experience of witnessing the miracles of Jesus should have moved them to not only be acutely aware of their errors and sinfulness, but to abhor them as well. And they should have determined within themselves after seeing the miracles, I have to enter into a better course of life. And so the expectation then was that witnessing the mighty works of Jesus meant we now need to be embracing the reality of our sinfulness and a true expression of sorrow for it in light of witnessing Jesus' divine mighty works. And the expectation today for those who have believed in Jesus is to demonstrate that we have seen the light by turning to God and doing works worthy of repentance. And you can see in this brief passage, can't you, the continuing ultimatum here, just like in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Remember repeatedly that the attitude of our hearts towards Jesus, the Messiah, determines and sets the stage for our eternal destination. So Scott preached last week that neither John nor Jesus were able to please the unbelieving Jews who were there watching them, And it was disgraceful that they were unable to see that both John and Jesus were called by God to be his messengers. And so in his denouncing the cities, Jesus was in effect telling them that they were like miserable children when it comes to using their ears and eyes to discern what they should have seen behind his mighty works. He's implying that the men of this generation have ears, but they don't hear what I'm saying And the men of this generation have eyes to see the mighty works I'm performing, but their eyes don't recognize that the kingdom of God is right here before them. And because they fail to recognize the presence of God's kingdom, they will not be able to receive the truth of who Jesus is. So in the text, Jesus denounces three Jewish cities where the greatest number of miracles were performed and most of his teaching took place. And he compares Chorazin and Bethsaida 
to Tyre and Sidon, both Phoenician and Gentile cities, and he compares Capernaum to Sodom. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. So in Bethsaida, Jesus performed the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves of bread and the fish, and he healed the blind man. In Chorazin, the city of Chorazin saw repeated miracles and teaching of Jesus for the previous three years. In Capernaum, Jesus did many healings. He healed a demon-possessed man. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. He healed a paralytic. He healed the centurion's servant. He healed the woman with the issue of blood. But let me bring something to your attention about the miracles that you may not have thought about. First of all, Jesus doesn't have any set pattern when it comes to performing mighty works. There's no formula that Jesus follows regarding when he will heal and when he won't heal and on what basis he does his healing. Most biblical miracles have an immediately apparent reason for them. They're not petty or trite. Biblical miracles are never performed with the intention of entertaining or on request from unbelievers. Nor are they regularly announced and publicized like so many charlatans on television these days who claim that they will have healings if you'll only turn in. Yet biblical miracles are not stereotyped either, all following a set formula or pattern. That doesn't happen. In fact, no two of the four healings of the blind reported in the four Gospels follow the same pattern. Each one is uniquely different. And of course, you know that biblical miracles don't involve enchantments or sorcery or any kind of magic formula. But notice that in Luke 5, for example, it says, And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, the four men that brought the paralytic, he said to the paralytic, man, your sins are forgiven you. So in this case, he healed because people other than the person he was healing believed in his power to heal. And Jesus justifies their faith in him by healing the paralytic. Likewise, Jesus heals the centurion's servant because the centurion believes, although we have no knowledge of whether or not his servant believed. In Matthew 8, 14, Jesus heals Peter's mother-in-law but there was no indication that she believed in Jesus. So in the text in Matthew 11 this morning, it says most of his mighty works were happening in cities where the people did not repent. Jesus chose to do mighty works in some cities where the people did not believe. And sometimes he heals people so that those watching who did not believe would have an opportunity to believe and to repent. 
But then again, in Matthew 13, 58, the text says, and he did not do mighty works there in Nazareth because of their unbelief. So in some instances, Jesus chooses to do mighty works where they did not believe in order to encourage faith and repentance. And in other instances, he chooses not to do mighty works because they did not believe. Jesus knows that if he had done mighty works in Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, he knows what the outcome would have been. They would have believed and then repented, he says. And he chooses whether or not to demonstrate to individual cities the mighty works that could have led to their repentance. And so we can't talk about the frequency of the mighty works without acknowledging God's sovereign hand and choices in when they happen. He has his own reasons for not performing mighty works at a particular city. I think we should understand this passage regarding Jesus choosing not to perform some mighty works that could lead to repentance within other contexts of Scripture that might be contradictory. For example, in 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, it says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So in our passage this morning, Jesus knows that he would have had to do the same mighty works in Tyre and Sidon that he did in Capernaum to bring Tyre and Sidon to repentance, but in some of the Jewish cities he went into, he didn't do those necessary works. For whatever reasons known only to him, Jesus decides sometimes not to do the kind of mighty works in some cities that would bring them to repentance, faith, and salvation. This is how I would think about this then. Simply because God's stated desire in 1 Timothy is that all people be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth does not necessarily bring about the action that would be necessary for that to happen. There are other factors involved that come into play that affect that decision to produce actions that would lead to repentance salvation, and a knowledge of the truth. And so, in considering this, we have to bow to God's sovereign reasons when we consider the whys of his healing. We can explain the sovereign choice of God to choose not to perform mighty works in another section of the pastoral epistles. You're familiar with it. 2 Timothy 2.25 says, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil and so even within the pastoral epistle second timothy 2 25 doesn't say listen it doesn't say god grants repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth to everyone because he desires that all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth so here's our thought process for this morning for each of us here in the congregation. It is God who gives the gift of repentance, which leads to a knowledge of the truth, just like we read back in Deuteronomy earlier. 
And he may or may not grant to a particular city or a particular individual the necessary grace so that they might be led to repentance, salvation, and a knowledge of the truth. And you know, maybe we don't need to know why Jesus and God chose to give the gift of repentance to some and not to others. Because the focus on the passage this morning is clear enough without our needing to know God's reasons for anything that he chooses to do. All that we need to know is this, that anyone witnessing the mighty works of Jesus who has an opportunity to believe him is under a greater condemnation for rejecting him than those who have not had the opportunity. And so this is great cause for us to be a joyful people in having had the opportunity to believe and repent. The reason Capernaum was to be brought down to Hades was because that city had, in effect, been exalted to heaven in the privileges that it had observed watching Jesus perform his mighty works to the glory and power of God. But in their witnessing the mighty works of Jesus, nothing but unbelief, indifference, and cynicism and cynicism was affected in them. Folks, listen. Miracles were Jesus' credentials that bear testimony to his divinity and his claims. And those who witnessed them were under greater condemnation for their unbelief, which means there are degrees of punishment meted out on Judgment Day. Verses 22 and 24 say, It will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon, Gentile cities, than for you. And it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for Sodom than for you, Capernaum. Sodom, more, more bearable for Sodom. That means that all punishment on the judgment day will not be equally terrible. Those who had the opportunity to repent because they saw firsthand the mighty works Jesus was performing that should have led to their repentance, but who were indifferent to the mighty works and to Jesus himself, will face a stronger punishment. This is a principle throughout the New Testament. So remember, there will be a day of judgment awaiting the world. It's called the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds, it says in Scripture. It is the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel, Paul said in Romans 2. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Peter wrote in 2 Peter, the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. Repeatedly, that's the claim throughout the New Testament. The punishment then that is meted out will be in proportion to the opportunities given and then rejected. In proportion to the privileges given but scorned in proportion to the light that was granted but was quenched. It will be a most intolerable doom for those who have abused the greatest opportunity 
to become members of God's kingdom, but chose to do otherwise. This principle is seen in Luke chapter 12, where it says, And that servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready or act according to his will, will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. And then upon the spiritual principle, this is the idea that follows. Everyone to whom much was given, much opportunity to repent, opportunity to observe the presence of God and his kingdom. Of him much will be required, and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. The more knowledge you have, the more accountable you will be. And in the proclamation of these woes, Jesus declares the degree of relative punishment that will be meted out as penalties to those cities that failed to recognize that he is the divine king. This declaration of woes is simply a further indication that he is exactly who he says he is when he states that failure to believe in him is cause for their eternal punishment. Think of the audacity of anyone else claiming that everyone who does not believe in him will suffer the doom of hell. But listen, in pronouncing the woes upon the cities, Jesus isn't requiring repentance simply from the most wicked and the immoral and the self-righteous and the depraved. Anyone witnessing the miracles and hearing his teaching about the kingdom who is indifferent to his claims will fall under this severe judgment. And you know what? This speaks to a really unfortunate truth for the United States. Many people in this country operate under a worldview that has absolutely no awareness of a pending judgment day and the degree to which we are going to be held accountable for the light we have been given. Think about the truth of the failure of so many to respond appropriately to Jesus, even today. So many people so hardened in their hearts because of years of living in a culture blinded by worldliness, blinded by greed and privilege and materialism, prejudice and unconfessed sin that has ruined their ability to comprehend who Jesus was. This is one of the most serious passages in the Bible. These words are some of the most fearful words which Jesus ever spoke. The sole effect of the gospel preached to those who did not repent was to plunge them yet deeper into the depths of guilt because of their refusal to believe in Jesus. But folks, listen, it's also a great Sunday for communion in spite of the pending woes and punishment for so many who will refuse Jesus. It's a great day for those who believe. Thomas Watson said that those who have Jesus are the crown and glory of Christianity. Listen to how he put this. That the tide of sin, which before did run so strong, should be so easily turned that the sinner who, 
a little before was sailing hellward and lacked neither wind nor tide to carry him there, should now suddenly alter his course and tack about for heaven. What a miracle is this! To see an earthly man become heavenly, a carnal man become spiritual, a loose man become precise, a proud man become humble, a covetous man become liberal, and a harsh man become meek, is to behold the greatest of miracles. So here's the picture we have been seeing in Matthew's gospel today. Jesus patiently, repeatedly, mercifully entreating sinners to believe in him through his teaching and his mighty works. So that they might know without doubt, they might plainly see that the kingdom of God had arrived and that their only proper response to Jesus was to repent. Folks, Jesus has given us more than enough evidence to properly discern his power and his holiness. And instead of the leaping up for joy at the opportunity to embrace his person, all that so many offer him today is their fatal criticism and indifference. Notice that Jesus doesn't just see this critical and indifferent response to him as merely one of many possible choices for them. Jesus isn't morally neutral. In his perfection, he can't be indifferent to our sin and rejection. And so his proclamation of woe to entire cities must come because they refuse his mercy and his love. People who choose indifference don't become the object of his pity. They become the object of his holy and jealous wrath. Folks, listen. There cannot be a greater crime than to reject the person of Jesus. Unbelief is the only sin that cannot be forgiven. There cannot be a human mistake greater than mistaking Jesus for someone that he's not. And because there cannot be a greater crime or a greater mistake men can make about the person of Jesus, the only fitting punishment for that crime and that mistake is the vengeance of the punishment of hell. As we prepare to take communion this morning together, we ought to be very careful about any sentiments of ingratitude or indifference or cynicism that might begin to creep into our lives regarding the gospel and the person of Jesus. And in light of those judgment woes, each of us would be wise to acknowledge that we have been highly favored with God's grace to not only hear the plain declaration of the gospel, but to respond in faith and with a repentant heart.